This episode of the No Film School podcast is sponsored by Musicbed. Musicbed believes everyone should have access to great music in their projects, regardless of their budget or workflow. That's why they just announced their all-new membership program, the first music licensing subscription of its kind, releasing this summer. Membership is here to make their world-class roster of artists and composers available for all of your projects. Membership will give you unlimited access to a majority of Musicbed's artists, all at a flat monthly or yearly rate based on the types of films you make. And if you still want single-use licenses, they're not going anywhere. Membership is just a new option to make licensing work better for your workflow. Be one of the first to learn more at musicbed.com membership. And don't forget, you can get 20% off your next on-site license with coupon code NF20. This is Oakley Anderson Moore, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. If you spent a few hours on a video trying to, say, match one impossibly orange shot to another slightly magenta, you know how aggravating, and yet how important, color is to a film. Of course, it's more than just matching shots. Color grading is a crucial part of how the world of the story is set. This week on part two of a look into the post-production process, we focus on the mysterious world of colorists. How do you become one? How do you work with one? How does the interplay of RGB affect the overall experience of your film? To answer that more, here's a conversation featuring some of the most accomplished colorists on the independent film circuit. So let me let me talk to the colorists for a little bit. So I I'd love to hear about, especially you know Sam and Nat. You guys have four plus five. You have nine films between the two of you. You know, can you speak to? the choices that you help the director make with color and what would be kind of interesting is if you can think of like two films that had a really different choice and you can like tell us about that. So like this, you know, if you had two films that went in very different directions, I would be curious to hear so that I could understand better how like those choices play out. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to, you're talking about tone and obviously with color, that's kind of like all we're doing. Right. I mean, of course, you know, we're doing the mundane things of matching shots and all that. But, you know, hopefully that's not uh, that's not the meat of it. Though, or what you're doing is 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 setting the tone. And um, yeah, the you know, every project is totally different. Surprise, surprise. Right. Um, and um, there's no like one color for Sundance Indie. Film. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a, the filter. A, a, a preset that I've spent a lot of time <laughs> building and now that I got it it's just like it's, it works perfectly um, no, um, you know each each filmmaker's um, approach is really different and um, you know the one of the things that I've found um, can be really great is to start the process as early as possible um, doesn't always <clears throat> it doesn't always work out that way um, but um, a lot of the cinematographers that I work with um, are people that I've worked with before, not always, um, uh, but, and, you know, there's that piece of that time in pre-production where um, no one quite knows what's going to emerge, like you guys are talking about, but doing things like building lookbooks and talking about inspirations and, you know, what, and kind of trying to imagine what the film might become and looking at other things that you like and what things you don't like. And um, that that piece of time can be super valuable. 
um, for the colors to be involved, if it's possible. Um, you know, it's challenging because the pre-production things are hectic and like everyone's running around like crazy people and like at, at some level, like, you know, doing elaborate tests and stuff is, is like the last thing that is on people's minds. They want to like scout locations and like figure out these like very um, critical um, things that are in some ways uh, kind of more pressing. But um, yeah, the um, one of the things that I've started doing as much as I can is working in pre-production and working with the cinematographer and director to um, come up with some ideas about what the film is going to look like and um, uh, build like a lot or whatever to allow the DP to use those looks that we've come up with um, in camera um, so that they, as they're shooting, they can be seeing um, what we've done and expose and do everything accordingly. Um, and also so that then in editorial, um, uh, they're working with something that has uh, the look that we've collectively envisioned. Um, and that doesn't, that can always change, right? But um, uh, it's, it's something that I find useful because you can, um, you can talk about like ideas that you'll implement down the road later. But I've found that, you know, if people spend six months working with something that was a, you know, a preset built by Ari or Sony or Red or whoever, um, that somehow like becomes ingrained in their mind as like the true thing, right? That that's like, that that's somehow the, the like the id of the, the footage and that <laughs> anything else is like something that you're putting on top of it, huh. right? That, that, and you know, the, truth of it of course is that like yeah that those things are no more true than anything else right um so anyway that was a um long-winded way of saying uh with i found it's great like to start that process really early in the process um if possible sometimes it's not and sometimes um you know sometimes the reverse can be true which is that like um a dp shoots something goes on and shoots a bunch of other projects, hasn't seen anything for eight months and comes back with totally fresh eyes and thinks like, oh yeah, you know, this. let's do something totally different. Like now that I see how this has been cut together, like let's, let's, let's not, you know, do what we were thinking about. Um, so yeah, there's no, uh, no rules, I guess. Um, <laughs> but um, to the extent that, uh, that the, the color, um, cannot be an afterthought, you know, obviously it is so integral to the tone. Um, and, um, you know, from that point of view, it's like, you know, I sometimes, I think it's great to like have the editors working with stuff that, that has, um, some, some piece of the feeling that you're working towards, you know, I occasionally work on projects where the editors are maybe working with like raw log footage or something that's completely different than what the end result will be and um yeah you know it's 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 puzzling to me because it's it's it is such a key piece of the tone right um and then so. they decide to keep it in log <laughs> you're like no <laughs> yeah that doesn't usually happen no. with the projects that I'm working <laughs> on. um but totally yeah well, I mean, this might be a silly question, but how, as a colorist, I mean, you're working, your eye will constantly be adapting. How do you work as a colorist and not just suddenly be like, 
having color, you know, how can you even keep clear what shifts in the color are happening? You know what I mean? From a still gallery. Scopes. So it's yeah. so yeah. all about you, the you scopes. Have, you have a, you have a, always have gallery references uh, to keep you honest and scopes. So if uh, which can be used um, for your benefit. Also, if someone says that a scene is looking a little too magenta, you could say, "Well, look here in the vector scope. It's really not." Uh, <laughs> you know, so that could yeah. be your, it. Could yeah. be your friend. Uh, um, uh, but to go back to what Nat said about getting involved uh, with color uh, in pre-production, I've had a, had a lot of great experiences with that because. The same reasons Nat said, uh, you you decide on on a look. It's uh, usually the uh, the DP lights through the look or the LUT that you've created, and the director and editor are used to that, so that you're impro- only improving upon it. Um, but it does take away a little bit of a, uh, of discovery, and sometimes you know you have to say, well, this is not working now that we see everything put together, and let's push this. Or we've had three blue scenes in a row everyone's eyes are going to normalize to blue and it's not going to feel, you know, you're not going to feel that, that emotion. Let's, 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 let's get a neutral scene um, first and then we can start warming things up as the story time. So there, when, when, especially when scenes are ordered around and a time of day has changed, you really have to, you have to um, have some flexibility as to um, how you can change the color and the tone uh, for, for the edit. And uh, let's see, of the f- four films that I have in, in the festival, I was only on pre-production for one, and we changed it completely. And uh, at the um, when we got to the the, the DI, uh, it was a movie called Piercing. Uh, I worked with the director Nick Pesh before on The Eyes of My Mother, which was here in 2016, and. Um, uh, he has a music video background, so he's he's really gutsy with with looks, as we had on Eyes of My Mother. And I showed him a look that I've been playing with called the Lightbox look, and it was just something that I came up with. Um, I was trying to find new looks. I was working on a TV show called The Deuce, and and I tried to create a look, and then I realized that it, it's just it was too much for this show, and uh, we stuck with a period look. Uh, of mimicking the way transparent photography looks when it's mounted on a light box and sh- and shine through it, and I showed it to Nick and he was all for it and and you know the, uh, the DP Zach Goller, uh, he he didn't want to have that look on set. I mean it didn't make any sense to him. So we I modified a look and it looked great. What he shot looked great, and we get to the DI and I'm all working with the LUT that we created and then I act. I mean it was. Accidentally on purpose, <laughs> put the light box on to kind of see how things, and it snapped right in. And Nick, Nick and I were looking at each other like, wow, this thing that we threw out months ago as being just, it was just not right. It all of a sudden, uh, it fit for 90% of the film, and I just had to massage the, the other 10%. And it, it's got a really nice, unique look that really fits for the film, and it's something that I just had in my back pocket. And I threw away the, the LUT that, you know, I I'd, uh, had tweaked you know months before for production um the the other films uh a movie called sorry to bother you uh the dp had his own lut that that he used and he liked and he was working on a tv show and he lit through that and looked good and then i had some extra time to play with it 
um, the VFX were late to deliver, so I had the material, and I'm, and I like found a whole bunch of stuff that was there that the LUT wasn't showing, and I created a new look, and everybody loved it, and it really fit the piece, and and thankfully the director and and the DP weren't uh, what we call te- in temp love, where you just what what Nat was saying is like this is the way the movie looks, and anything too far from that, uh, it feels different. So I was able to to find really some just some 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 new tones for for the film and really bring out some of the comedy and some of uh the the satire that that you weren't feeling from from the production lot um seth you have uh any yeah anything dan uh we the animals was interesting because it was shot on super 16 in red um so we did they needed to shoot super 16 for the director wanted that look um and also because of the time period the film takes place uh, and they also needed to shoot digital because there were a lot of VFX shots. So digital would make the VFX a lot easier. Um, so before they even started shooting, we did camera tests, um, and we did tests side-by-side side with Super 16 and Red, um, and we matched the look and the grain between the two, um, and I did side-by-side side tests, and <laughs> people couldn't guess which was which, which was like pretty <laughs> exciting to do. Um, and we also dialed in the look, which is to some extent already there for film. Um, granted, we, we played around with contrast a bit, but we referenced a lot of photographers like Mary Helena Clark and um, DeCorsha as well. And we went off of photography references that he had, but we definitely had, had temp love or, you know, for when he was, you guys were cutting, we made LUTs. Um, but the director started feeling like, oh, film should be soft, you know. But then when we would go back and look at stills pulled from film, shot on film, they always have a healthy level of contrast. So we wound up, the color grade kind of worked in a pendulum manner to some extent. The DP, Zach Mulligan, sat in uh, before I started working with the director, because uh, that's how his schedule worked out. And we wound up going for a more contrasty look that the DP wanted. Um, but then when uh, Jeremiah came in to look at all that, he was like, whoa, you guys are nuts. This is too, <laughs> this is too contrasty. So we, we swung back the other way for something lower contrast and softer. Um, but then as the grade went on, we wound up swinging back the other direction a bit with, you know, uh, a little more contrast in color. A lot of the, the um, set design influenced the color, of course. Um, the set designer is super important. And Jeremiah and I talked about that before he started shooting, you know, the different palettes he was going to choose and that the house they shot in was super important. Uh, it's an awesome house that they found in Utica upstate. Uh, so that, that influenced the palette tremendously. Um, so I didn't want to try to destroy anything. You know, I think for color, you don't want to wind up ruining a beautiful set by trying to shoehorn anything. Yeah. Um, so we wanted to, you know, bring all that out in, in the color. You know, we experimented with a few different things and tweaking things, and there were a lot of shots we had to shoehorn together. And when we had to do that, sometimes we had to make a good shot look a little worse, you know, and to make a bad shot look better and have them cut seamlessly. Um, but, the, uh, yeah, the whole process was really rewarding, and Jeremiah was really involved in the, in the look. Can I bring up one more thing about tone in documentary and yes. music? Yeah. Because I think music is really controversial in documentary, and I'd be curious what Keiko has to say about it. And that's something that from the beginning, Jonathan and Nalan were like, okay, this, we want this to be an entertaining film, first and foremost, a movie, not like nonfiction, fiction. And 
so from the beginning, we just were like, we were super clear, we can use million dollar temp scores. We're just going to go for it. And we're going to make not worry about, you know, I think a lot of doc filmmakers and editors are nervous about the music over compensating for something or over empowering and or it's supposed to be more like subtle and supportive Mm -hmm. and in this case we just did the exact opposite and we did have like some criticism just from a couple people we showed it to that they're like oh your music's just too it's too much you know like yeah that's the point (laughs) yes you know so I think that was another thing that I think we were playing with and like didn't feel like we needed to be constrained by the way like kind of people think about even the makers of documentaries think about how to use music but so just to say that also Troy Harry and the composer took it to a whole nother level so he had this temp score to play with and then that had an enormous impact on the overall tone eventually which I think in all in documentaries you know maybe people don't capitalize on that enough the temp love is definitely a huge problem for the music because <laughs> uh, I think I've I do pretty good job temping music in, and so when the finally the composer comes in, or when we have the actual music we can afford, it's it comes as sometimes as a dis- dis- disappointment. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, and you're like, I like the Philip Glass one better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on uh, Clara's Ghost, we had kind of a mix of the two things because we were. Working with this incredible artist, Stella Mazgawa, who is the drummer in the band Warpaint. And she came on very early on in the pre-production process. So we kind of were giving her a heads up of where we wanted to go with the film. And our temp love came from temp tracks that she was sending us as we were cutting. And we started to fall in love with things. And after we found out we were in Sundance and we were trying to wrap up, Stella was in Australia on tour and she hit some kind of epiphany and sent me about 12 tracks and I just, my head exploded. Like I (laughs) fell in love and I went to Bridie and I said, you need to trust me here. Like this is something I know that we've been listening to these things that uh, really work for the film, but whatever happened to Stella last week, it, this completely changes the film. And I think it really took form, especially because we were having trouble with our opening scene and trying to find, like, how do we set the tone for the film right off the jump? And Stella came up with something that was dark and tribal and I think set the tone for how spooky the film could be, even though it's kind of a comedy. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 that was, and that was it. I, just to speak on the tribal aspects of it, it was unique because we used all these tribal Apache drums that uh, we wanted to bring up anytime Clara was being teased or ultimately possessed by the ghost in the film. Um, but yeah, it shaped, it definitely shaped the tone of, of certain scenes. Even if we were trying to play a little heavier on the comedy, it allowed the audience to know that like, you're also supposed to be scared, even though there's a couple lines in here that are making you laugh. I think that's important in color as well when you get to hear the mix and see what music is being used. Um, they were sending us tracks that the composer had made while we were grading and it was a big impact to see how much a scene shifts with color, like something that might be a little heavy handed when you're grading it, um, without the music might fit well when the music is strong because it helps amp that up even more if the director wants that kind of mood and then the opposite can equally be true. Um, that was an important part of color as well. Interesting. So the one more thing I want to maybe that the colors can speak to all, you know, 
people listening to this on No Film School, there's all kinds of levels of people's experience. But if you're sort of a filmmaker starting out, you may have edited your own stuff and done little things. But there's a lot of people who haven't even got to the point where they've had a colorist do anything. Can you just speak, you know, what's like the basic process from the editor to you guys? What, you know, can you break that down for people that haven't actually reached the point where they've had the privilege to work with a colorist and they are just tweaking things in, in whatever program they have? Yeah, I don't know if this is like what I have to say is a direct answer to that. But I guess like the sort of the piece of advice that I would throw out there as more of a, a warning <laughs> to people in that situation is that, um, you know, Sam said earlier sort of jokingly about like, do no harm, you know, and the, the, that, that sort of is this like fundamental thing I think to keep in mind <laughs> with color, especially in the sort of entry level and like starting to dabble around with things. And, um, is, is that, uh, it's really easy to, um, really destroy something. Um, and, um, I've seen a lot of micro budget projects where, um, filmmakers have decided to like do their own little thing in premiere or whatever. And, um, you know, it's a lot of times it's, it's really easy to make things worse. Um, you know, and that one of the um, things that we do as colorists is that's the hardest is to maintain a naturalism, and that you know you're sort of you're discovering the the beauty that's already in the footage, right? I mean, ninety percent of the time, once in once in a blue moon, you're in a weird position where you're you're creating something that's totally different and not there, but most of the time you're finding what is there and. Um, that's kind of goes against the instinct that a lot of people have about like, oh, here I have all these tools and I can just like, what if we put blue into the blacks and now we'll put some green in the midtones and orange and like I can start drawing shapes and, you know, like doing things with the curves and um, that's not a good way to do anything. Um, you know that that I think it's um, I think it's really helpful for people that are starting to get into things to keep the the less is more um, mantra like very close to their heart, and that um, you know I also think that for me personally like when I'm approaching color I I sort of separate things into two boxes of things that I'm doing to the image that are within the realm of like physical plausibility and then things that are sort of like a, a like a film stock type look right so when you change the exposure of a shot or you you know you're you're relighting um you're changing the color temperature um to be warmer or cooler um all of those things are things that um could have happened in camera right like that it's perfect, you know, maybe the exposure is a little under, maybe you want to put a little bit more light on your main character. Um, but you're, you're doing things that are sort of within the realm of physical plausibility. Um, and then there's like a separate box, um, that you're doing things that are more in line with like a creation of a film stock, um, where maybe there is like a little bit of blue in the blacks, or there's a, you know, a little bit of an interesting way that the, Midtones 
um, work or you know it's you're creating like something that emulates a Fuji film stock or whatever and those things um, that box of things I think you have to um, mentally keep them a little bit separate and you don't want to be do creating new looks on a shot by shot basis right you don't want to be like the first scene shot of a scene have put a little bit of cyan into the midtone and then you know in the second shot you're doing something different and if you're just going from shot one to shot two to shot three and like opening up this enormous tool set and starting to like stab at it um it's going to be a disaster right so um i guess um yeah i guess it might uh my kind of advice to, to people in that situation would be a maybe don't do it at all um, and um, like less time with someone that um, has experience doing color is probably better than um, like trying to do it yourself I, which is it hurts for me to say that since I'm such a believer in the DIY spirit and like we were talking about kind of like jumping into like teaching yourself a craft um, or even if, if you are interested in learning it um, you know maybe finding uh, an experienced colorist and working with them and asking them are there any parts of the process that I could do myself their answer will probably be no um, but um, <laughs> but that, that, that would be a sort of a better approach than just like um, you know, I, mean, I can't tell you how many small projects I've seen where they've, you know, they're like, well, we've been like noodling with this thing in Premiere for six months. And it's like, could, could you, and it's like, no, 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 no. Like, <laughs> like this is just. Yeah. As, as an editor that's cut like seven feature docs, I should never be allowed to use <laughs> the color tools. It's still like, you can do so much damage. I can totally attest to that. You go down this hole that it's very hard to get yourself back out of. It's. Right. Yeah. So much I mean, respect for colorists. And, and the tools that are available too in editorial are not necessarily like the tools that I would want to give an editor. You know, if um, if editorial was working in a color managed pipeline, like I think it would be great if they had like a exposure adjustment, right, or even a color temperature adjustment, and could just say, "Oh, this shot is like maybe a stop under. Let's just bump it up." Like that, that's a reasonable thing to want to do. Um, but you, when an, an editor or someone starts like noodling around in the three-way color corrector, it's like, <laughs> this is like uh, trouble, right? Um, so yeah, I don't know if that's uh I was going to say from the, the editing side of things, I deal with this a lot as well, because I think that because technology is so readily available and user-friendly that most of all filmmakers know enough to be dangerous. And so from editorial side, uh, because I, I, I'm not a colorist in any way. And I try to stay out of that because I believe that certain jobs are for certain people and that's what they're good at that for that. But yeah, I, I do occasionally run into the director who, uh, recut a scene in premiere or final cut and want you to take a look at it and do it his way and things like that. And, or, or, or titling, um, not, not so much on color, but like just, you know, messing around with graphics and titles. And then you see what they came up with and you're like, 
I think you should spend some money on the right person to be doing that. But yeah, yeah, it's uh, I, I, I think great filmmakers are those that know who to be collaborative and um, hire people for the right reasons, because you, you don't you don't hire somebody that comes um, well regarded and referred and then, you know, tell them to push the buttons. You need to put a little bit of trust in them at least. I want to talk, uh, add to what Nat was saying about tools and, and also what Patrick said about having all these tools available. Uh, Seth, what pr platform do you work on? Yeah, Resolve. Okay. Uh, Nat and I both work on DaVinci Resolve. DaVinci Resolve is a free download or for a whopping $300, it is a full studio uh, download, the full version. Uh, anybody could do that. You could buy a $300 little Ripple um, uh panel it's not it's not that big and you can you could have a trackball and move move things around and interface the software um for under a thousand dollars um that is great okay but it's like having a formula one race car uh <laughs> and not knowing how to shift the gears like you you, you can sit in it you could start it you could push it. Yeah, but do you know how to navigate the hairpin turns? Do you know how to get to the finish line? And that's where experienced colorists can do that. That we we that I have been doing this more than I want to say, longer than I was to say. I know how to match shots in my sleep. You know, I know how to like, from going to scopes or whatever technique is. And while these things are free or uh, inexpensive, the amount of time and love and money that you put into a project you you it's like a like gift wrapping you're not going to just it's like slip, slipping it into a gift bag with a tissue paper like here's my film you know if you had somebody a professional gift wrap it for you then it's a lot it, it looks a lot better when it's sitting under the christmas tree i just i don't know i just pulled that <laughs> analogy out of the out of thin air maybe it's it's all the snow that's around me and all the evergreens that we just have a very north pole vibe yeah. here so. uh yeah, find the but, money for a good colorist if you I, can. It's just, I, uh, make such a difference. I was on Luster first. Well, first of all, actually, I was I worked on an actual DaVinci, you know, with Telesini when I first was learning. So uh, when I got into digital, it, I learned on Luster, which is an Autodesk product. And I found it very confining. I, 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 I color, great, but I couldn't do a lot of other stuff. And then all of a sudden, I jumped on Resolve, and I was like, whoa, this is so intuitive, and this is kind of fun. And like, I love this. And it was just like version eight, so that we couldn't do anything. And I, I just couldn't stop. And I had, to, I had edit, you know, people would give me quick times and I could work on a quick time and I didn't have to worry about DPX trans. Like I really dove into this tool and, and, um, but I, it, the thing is I already had an aesthetic. I already had, I knew what a good image looked like. I knew how to get a good looking image. And I, these were just tools to help me get there in a different way and improve upon that. And so I think anybody who wants to color their own project or learn how to be a colorist uh, or a um, post-production prof professional and, and know a little bit about color, uh, there's so many demos out there, uh, techniques and LUTs that you could download, but you really need to understand uh, the aesthetic that goes into a good looking image and look at art, look at photography. These are the things that I get as references from cinematographers or directors. Uh, they, they, I'm constantly looking at references to, uh, to paintings and to some f fashion photography or photography. 
and that that is what we use as as sort of uh, as a common reference for what is beautiful or or what is artistic and what helps uh, tell a story and something tangible and and understand things like contrast and saturation the way flesh tones look and 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 figure out the tools to get that just the basics it's it, you're you're dealing with additive light uh, principles red green and blue and and the mixture of red green and blue and and if you start on that foundation which is how I started uh, just balancing dailies you you start and understand how red green and blue interact together and how contrast uh, can can play a part and color saturation can play a part and then once you get the basics down then you could worry about your curves or your windows or your LUTs uh, anything that creates sort of a style or helps improve upon it but you have to have a foundation challenge yourself to match shots there's so many times that I work on um, on TV shows or movies where they shot a first half of the scene in the morning and then they broke for lunch and then the light changed when they covered it and, and you have to match that or else because when everything's cut together you you have to have the flow so it feels like it's happening in real time and if you don't know how to do that it doesn't make a difference what kind of crazy LUT that you put on or look I put a window on their face it means nothing you have to you have to make the experience um, enjoyable for the viewer or proper for the viewer and something like matching shots is like so technical but it's so essential to the part of uh, color correction and the, and, and the color grading process that you, you unless you practice that you, you can't there is nothing within resolve well that's not true they have an auto color correct but doesn't know <laughs> it doesn't ha know how to match aesthetically it will just look at the in the average of a shot and kind of like all right well this is you know this is how it matches up with the, the average light values and color values of this shot. And it never lines up. Yeah, it you sucks need, all the intention out of the image yeah. that the DP had. Yeah. So you have to, you, you have to if you really want to advance and, and learn this, you start, a, have a good foundation of aesthetics and technique and then build upon that. And um, Yeah, and sorry, just to add to that, I think lift gamma gain is your friend and people get like, we have the advanced panel, of course, like you guys, and there's so many buttons on it and controls, but most of your time is spent with your hands on those three controls. And just adjusting that and not spending too long on each image will get you much better results than like diving into a Pandora's box of problems where you're like tweaking one shot way too much and then nothing else can possibly ever match it because you're making a beautiful still, but it's not going to play well or you're not going to see how anything goes in sequence. Well, super fascinating. Um, Can I add one thing? Yeah. That, which is just that I think just on the same less is more thing, I think that's something that's like always interesting to kind of keep in mind is like I sort of point out to people all of the great films that they love historically that were done photochemically um, without access to any of the controls that we have today, right? You, there's no ability to adjust the curves. There's no saturation. There's no contrast. You know, there's, you're adjusting exposure and exactly. Right. And, and so if you think about like, well, what are the, what are the films that you, that you love and like, what, what are your like top 10, films that you like think are just incredibly beautiful um you know i think for a lot of people those are going to be films that uh were created without access to any of the controls for manipulation that we have today um 
so yeah, I think that that's sort of a, it's just something that's good to kind of, I don't know. I, I think it's interesting and useful for people to keep in mind if they're thinking like, oh, I can't really create a, like it must be like, colors must be using all these crazy controls that are like so complicated and you know, the, the you can't create something beautiful without those. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's just something that I think is kind of good to keep yeah. in mind. And you're, you're hiring a colorist for having that 10,000 hours plus of experience, yeah. and, experience and the taste that goes into it. Like you've been staring at those images forever. You're constantly referencing uh, photography or, you know, fashion, like Sam said. And you, so you have like a Rolodex in your brain of different looks and then you just do it instinctively because you know you just know the panel and you know the controls and you don't even have you don't have to look down you just execute it and then turn and color with the speed of the thought. director and hope you're headed the right direction you know yeah. just adding on to what you guys are saying like one of the one of the decisions we had during the animation process was like you know i mean i everything was done with with crayons and paper it was very traditional in that way um what would happen is like i would draw different layers and then assemble them in photoshop um, and then take each still and throw it into Premiere. Um, and then we would kind of do this test of like, does the animation work? Does it feel right? Um, uh, Jeremiah like was very insistent about like us taking it a step further. Um, we ended up photographing, we ended up printing everything that I, that I had, you know, done in Photoshop and then photographing it in a dark room under a light table. And there was like this texture that came through the paper. Um, and we spent, yeah. I mean, we spent so much time just like playing around with different textures. Like we, we, we would tape up the, the paper to a window, see if like natural light was interesting. We oiled the paper at some point, um, cause that brings out texture in a lot of ways. And, um, yeah. And, and at some point, you know, I was like, I was like, well, we can probably manage all of this in premiere in some way. Like I, I can add like a jitter to to the to the position of the paper to make it feel like there's a slight difference in registration from still to still, um, I can slap on a photograph texture on top of the Photoshop and I can you know mimic all of these things. Um, and he was very insistent that we just like do it in the in the most laborious possible way. And, <laughs> um, but ultimately, like he was so right. Like there was something so natural and tangible about just doing that and that was essential to to making it feel like it was really we were in the room with with you know Jonah and while these things were coming alive or or it just felt very tangible and I think that was an essential quality to the animations <laughs> Seth did something that was rad to the animations um, I mean the coloring that, that you did with them was awesome but there was this one thing uh, there's this one moment where there's like fireflies that come out of um, a character's <coughs> eyeballs essentially um, and the yellow that I used, the crayon, was like sort of dull. Um, and and Seth was able to like kind of make it feel slightly like it was glowing a little bit more, mm -hmm. um, but not fake. You know, there was a very fine line there, and and I think that that made that animation stand out so much more, in my opinion. So yeah, yeah, it's right. <laughs> There's so much talent at this table. It has been such an honor to talk to all of you today and hear about your process and hear about how you take all these films and just bring them to life. I guess since we're winding down, the last thing that maybe I could ask is if, if all of you would think of like one line of advice you would give to people listening to this, wanting either to get into what you're into or just in general for the artist storytelling, what line of advice would you, would you have for them? 
think I have something. It's like be willing to give up a really good paying job for a really crappy paying job in the world you want to be in. And you might have to do it over and over, but it can pay off. Nice. <laughs> uh, to piggyback off of that, for sure. I, I think that um, take risks, um, network with people. And uh, don't be afraid to take a free job if you have to, because I'm here right now because I, ex- you know, had a roommate who uh, asked me if I could come help him out on a short film that he was shooting for two days for a hundred dollars a day, and I only ended up getting a hundred dollars even. <laughs> and uh, for two days, I shot this short film with this director and this producer. And at the end of the shoot, I gave the producer my card and said, "If you need anybody to edit this film, let me know." And a couple months later, she contacted me unhappy with the edit they had and asked me to take a look at it. And I recut it. And that film was Affections, directed by Bridie Elliott. And it went to Sundance. And then we made her feature film. And that's the only reason I'm here right now is because I gave Sarah Winshaw my my card. I guess we're going in order. By the way, this is not a round table. It's rectangular. I just <laughs> People can't see that. But it, it really kind of threw me lies. when we sat down at the round table. And it's rectangular. So... Um, my advice, and I usually tell uh, young filmmakers or uh, people wanting to start out in post-production, uh, is this. The most important job that I have ever worked on is the one I'm working on right now. And I, anytime I'm on a project, um, that's the kind of attitude I have, is that all everything I did up to that point and everything I'm going to do is, is, is based upon this, this project that I'm working on. And so I, I don't... I, I, I don't phone anything in. I don't look forward to the next. I I'm, I'm have to be in it. So if you are, if you have a temp job or you're a freelance or if you're, you're working on something you feel you know, is not really right for you, just give it your passion. Give it your all. And it'll, it, it, it will only help build, build your spirits and help build your reputation and uh, just I I worked graveyard shift for seven years straight, okay. And man, if every you know syncing audio or doing dailies, and if every everything was perfect, like I I, I didn't think of it as as oh what am I going to do? It's like everything I, I put everything into it, and uh, and I still do. So just uh, just be in the moment and and really really focus on what you have in front of you and and work for and and uh, work forward in building your career and always have that attitude. Um, yeah, all this advice, it's turning out to be pretty daunting. Um, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I, I agree and would tap, tag on to everything that everyone else has said that it's, it, it's not easy at all. You know, that, the um, you know, there's like some glamour associated with making films, I suppose, with, with <laughs> people that have, don't have experience actually doing it. Um, but that, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard and to, to go along with that, I would say, you know, make sure that you really want to do it um, and that you actually find the thing that you're hoping to do interesting, you know. So with, with color, you know, they, I, or something like that, I, I would say, like, you know, make, make sure that you, you actually enjoy doing it um, because if you don't, um, you know, there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, you know, there's no, the, the reward is the doing it. Right. And so if the doing it isn't making you happy, then it's probably not the right thing to do. <laughs> and that, you know, I know a lot of people who end up 
kind of grinding out hours of things, thinking that they're working toward, you know, some, uh, some, some sort of holy grail on the horizon. And um, that's not to say that you, there's, you don't work your way up, because I think, you know, all of us have done that, and that, that's the way that it goes. But that, that you have to also be interested and, and enjoy doing what you're doing along the way to be able to have that attitude that Sam's saying, like, the, the, what I'm doing right now is the most important thing. Like, you can't really be looking forward to thinking like, ugh, I hate doing what I'm doing right now, but like, there's some theoretical thing on the horizon that's going to be great. It's like, no, you know, like, and, you know, I, I, I'm always like stunned by the number of people that I talk to that are trying to get into color that don't actually seem to have that much interest in photography and, um, you know, images, painting, the way the light work works and are sort of have are more sort of mesmerized by either the technology of it or something like that and um so yeah you know you have to it seems obvious but you have to be interested in what it is that you want to do to have that passion for it so yeah. i was lucky enough to have uh, mentors like people i worked for who was I was able to learn from what just watching what they are doing. And I think it's a little harder these days uh, in the digital editing world. But I think even if you're an assistant, make a point to spend some time with the editor, watch what they're doing. And if I have an assistant sitting in my room, I tend to explain what I'm doing. And that's just one way to learn the craft. And I think that's very important. Uh, and watch tons of movies. <laughs> <laughs> so hard to go at the end of this. <laughs> Did everyone else take your answers already? <laughs> uh, I'll go first with saying I was going to say all the good things you guys did. Uh, no, I would, I would say really good advice is be present. And um, always, like Sam was saying, work hard on whatever you have in front of you. Um, and don't do it expecting some kind of reward. Do it for the work itself to become better at it. Each time you work, your intention is to make it better. Um, when you're collaborating with other people, expect that they're working their best too. Um, don't think anyone's trying to cheat you or trying to like pull some kind of different look over you. You know, they're collaborating with you and trying to help you do what you want to do. Um, and my my other advice would be. When you do find um, collaborators, you know, it, you don't have to have a ton of money to find a colorist that's professional. I have assistants and they do, you know, lower budget jobs sometimes. And that's how they learn and build relationships. Um, and they have more experience than most people in color, you know. Um, and don't be afraid of letting other people show you what they think your film could be because um, you're a little blind to it at a certain stage and be accepting of their advice. Um, and if they're wrong, that's fine. You can tell them. Um, my last bit of advice would be if you make a mistake, admit to it and fix it right away. Um, don't start arguing with people. Just like <laughs> fix it and move on, you know, and get back to what you're supposed to be doing. Totally. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I agree with that. Like, uh, I'm a pretty solitary person creatively. Um, this is like the first time I've ever collaborated in a creative environment with anyone. 
Uh, and everybody that was on board was just so, so great, so talented. Um, Jeremiah was so trusting with me. Um, I think like, yeah, being, being, I'm a very matter of fact person when it comes to, to like, uh, sharing ideas. You know, if you don't like something that I've expressed to you, um, I won't take offense to it at all if you think it sucks. Um, and that was definitely happening, you know, like when I started doing the animatics for the animation, you know, Jeremiah was definitely a little bit sensitive to the way that he was trying to express, you know, changes or, or, you know, whether or not he liked something. And I just told him right off the bat, like, if you think this sucks, like, I won't take offense, you know, I'm here to, to, to make this, this vision come true. And, uh, and I think ultimately, like, our back and forth was, was really, really healthy um, for that reason. So, oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Just yeah. And that's one of the reasons that there's three of us here from yeah. We the Animals is because yeah. Jer- Jeremiah is one of those directors that's, like, a super glue, you know, yeah. and, like, everyone's stuck to the project and, like, can't extricate themselves yeah. from it until yeah. it's perfect. Uh, and that's that's a testament to his personality and who he is as a person and why everyone on the team has been so crazy and dedicated to it yeah. at fuck, God, God-forsaken <laughs> hours, you know. Yeah. But, Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, Jeremiah is is an incredible leader in that in that respect. And the producers too, like Christina and Jeremy, um, were so encouraging throughout the process. I definitely came into it um, a little bit insecure because I'd never done animation before, um, and you know those those things really really helped make this this project come to fruition. So yeah, good to have a great team. Yeah, totally. Well, thanks everyone. This has been awesome. And this is, this was the No Film School podcast on post production at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. Thank you. (laughs) I mean, rectangular table. (laughs) Make sure to check out part one of this conversation if you haven't already. Stay tuned for Indie Film Weekly. Subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcast platform. And as always, thank you for listening.